0: Hey, well, good morning, uh, Salem. Happy Easter. All right? Happy and blessed Easter. We're so glad uh, that you guys are here uh, with us uh, this morning. If you guys were here uh, with us this last, uh, this last week, you may remember that we, uh, we got the opportunity uh, to walk through what's called the Seder meal. And uh, that's the Passover meal, the, the meal that Jesus would have shared with his disciples uh, in those final, those final days, that final week. And and if you remember, the Seder meal is actually um, the mark, the, the, the calendar mark from, from winter into spring, right? It's when new life starts. And, and we kind of got to experience that a little bit this week, didn't we? As the weather started, you know, freshening up and we got to be outside. And that's always a joyful thing. As things begin to grow, uh, I saw some green weeds coming out of my yard. <laughs> Not green grass, green weeds. Um, and so things are coming to life. Uh, but why we're here this morning, right, it's Easter, and we're celebrating uh, new life, uh, and that's far deeper, far, far more transformational in its nature, as that's through the, through the life, the death, and the resurrection uh, of Jesus. And so really, it's, in some sense, this is no different than any other Sunday. Uh, because we should always be celebrating those things, and yet, today, we give it kind of that special extra credence, and so we're glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm the senior pastor here at Salem. This is my, uh, my lovely wife, um, Nikki, who I like to joke is my better nine-tenths, and she hates it when I say that. Um, she also hates uh, matching.
1: Yeah, we weren't matching until you put your vest on.
0: The gray kind of threw it off. You can blame COVID for that, because I put on my—I wanted to wear purple— and my shirt was a little too tight in the tummy, <laughs> tummy area, so I put on the vest. And so if you're like, man, why is he wearing a vest? It's hot. Well, now you know. So uh, now that I feel like we're all family, we all know Seth's weaknesses, then we can, we can move forward. So um, as Nikki and I, um, over these past weeks, have just been praying uh, and trying to really just determine, discern the Lord's will and where he would lead us this morning uh, for this text. This is not something we get to do very often, and I just love uh, getting the privilege to do it. It's a sharpening thing for me. And, uh, but we've just felt like that the Spirit really led us to the passage of John 10, uh, which is where Jesus talks about being the door uh, and the good shepherd. And so we're going to talk about that uh, this morning. But before we, before we get into that, let me ask you a question. How many of you guys here have a birthday? That's a trick question. It's a trick question. It's a really easy question, but apparently it's tricky. Uh, For those of you who didn't raise your hand, uh, please tell me, how did you come into this world? how many of you guys, I mean, like we all, like we all have birthdays and, and probably most of us have gotten a gift on our birthday. And so let me ask you this question. Um, how many of you ever have ever felt that when someone, so whoever it is, it's, it's, it's a special, significant other, it's a, a spouse, a brother, a sister, a parent, a son or daughter, or just a best friend or grandpa, grandpa, whoever it is, is somebody who obviously loves me enough to get me a gift. But has anybody ever been felt like you've been in danger, is that when this person is handing you a gift like you're like as you receive it you're in danger of of tuning out like does somebody hand you a gift you're like cool cool oh a plane <laughs> you know or like oh a squirrel or a ball or do you ever feel like you're like in danger of like falling asleep somebody hands you a gift you're like cool <laughs> does it does anybody do that no Nobody does that. Why? Because gifts are like, there's something intrinsic about our nature. We love gifts because gifts mean that I, I, I'm getting something. It's, there's there's going to be something inside of this gift that's going to satiate or satisfy me in some way, shape, or form. It's going to bring fulfillment to an area of my life that does not have fulfillment. And so we get really excited. We're fully engaged in the process, really, when somebody gives us a gift. And the reality is that whatever is inside of this gift, like I begin to postulate and formulate, really theorize, what is it that is inside of this gift? And I I begin to think about the goodness of this gift, which then the older I get, as a kid this may not happen, but the older I get, when when I think about the goodness of the gift, it forces me to think about the goodness of the gift giver. Because they went out of their way to get something for me um, that's very thoughtful and intentional in a way that they know me and love me and care for me. And so I begin to think through all of those, those types of things. And depending on the goodness of the gift, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, like it can, it can change my life in small ways, like it will bring satisfaction, um, or it can radically, radically change and transform my life in an absolutely huge way. And I like I said, we're going to be in John chapter 10 this morning, but I want to just start with John chapter 9, a quick summary, because what we find, this is very much directly linked in John, in reading from 9 to 10, these two are just so linked, and what we find is a man uh, whose life is radically changed and transformed by Jesus, and so it's this man who's born blind, and, and, uh, you know, and he meets Jesus, uh, and when they meet, what happens? Surprise, surprise, he's no longer blind. Right, Jesus heals him, which is this fascinating, extraordinary, extravagant like moment. And he goes from from not being able to see to being able to see. And so the Pharisees, who are a religious sect of the day, who really dislike Jesus, which is crazy, because he's doing incredible things, and yet they they come and they start questioning everybody involved. And first they go to his parents, because they think, well, maybe he wasn't really born blind. Maybe this is some illusion, or this is some trick. And so they go to the parents, and they're like, well, no, I can tell you that he was born blind. Now, how he gained his sight, I don't know. You'll have to go talk to him. And so what do they do? They go talk to this guy, and they begin to question him over and over and over. Who's this guy who did this? How did he do it? Why was he able to do it? Blah, 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 blah. And they just keep going. And this guy's response, this poor guy, he just, he just got healed. He was born blind. And now he can see, and he's getting pestered by these Pharisees. And he's like, listen, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know any of the answers to those questions. But here's what I do know. Which, by the way, you didn't ask this question. But here's what I do know. I once was blind, but now I see. Right? This is extraordinary. This is absolutely mind-boggling. We hear the story, we're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. No, no, this is incredible. And he has to actually, he has to defend this story. A man who's born blind and now can see, he has to defend this story to the Pharisees because they just continue to pester him. And he's like, do you not realize? Like, I, I get it that I was blind, so there's irony, right? I was blind, but now I see. But do you not see, as Pharisees, that this is an incredible thing? And that's what he says. This is an amazing, incredible In fact, in verse 32, in in chapter 9, which is not on our screens, so don't don't look for it. He says this. He says, just so we're clear, right? Between this guy to the Pharisees, he said, just so we're clear, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Right? That's how incredible and, and amazing of a thing that this really is. And he has to defend it. And meanwhile, the Pharisees are like, meh.
1: And like the man born blind, we all have these things that are wrong either with us or with our lives, things that we wish we could change, right? Whether it's something bad from your past, chronic illness, uh, some sort of injustice that has been done to you, depression, family problems, infertility, whatever it is, we have these things that we wish that are broken, that we wish could be made right.
0: Yeah. And even as I think about my own self, as my own story, as I think about my my failures, my my inadequacies, my deformities, all of the things about me that I just I don't like. I think about those things and I go, oh, like yeah, like, there's so much about me that I would have changed. And here Jesus enters in to this story, right What is he doing? He's pointing people to a new reality. He's pointing people to this idea that gosh for those people who are born blind, guess what? There's a new reality that says you don't have to be blind like I can heal that. And really, what he's doing is he's setting the stage for this extraordinary event that would happen on what we call Easter, right? Is this resurrection. And really, he's pointing people to the reality that, that there will be one day, a day, when not even death is a part of the brokenness of this world. And that's a fascinating and incredible thing. And yet the Pharisees who are observing this whole thing are are so, like, it baffles me. They don't care at all about what just happened in front of them. And all they care about is trapping Jesus. And so what they do is they want to have, like, this little sit down. So it's like, Jesus, let's have a coffee date. Let's get together and let's talk because you're doing some things that we don't like and we think that you should stop. And Jesus would probably be like, sorry, guys, like, that's not the way that it's going to work. Because that's not who I am, and that's not the way that the promise works. This is who I am, and this is what I'm coming to fulfill. And so what Jesus is going to do in John chapter 10 is he's going to unpack this parable about sheep and a shepherd. And I thought that may seem strange to us because we don't think about sheep or shepherds very often. But in the Old Testament, this is a very common um, idea, very common illustration for how God talks about a relationship of his king to his people.
1: So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now remember, he's talking to the Pharisees who have been questioning him. So he has this double emphasis on what I'm saying is true. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out when he has brought out all his own he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice a stranger they will not follow but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers this figure of speech Jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them so let's just pause here and talk about sheep for a second okay i think especially around easter time in the church we had this little like idyllic kind of almost angelic picture of Uh, What Jesus would look like holding this cute little white lamb that's perfectly clean and cozy and cuddly. Sheep are not clean animals, okay? Like, if you look at a sheep that is in the pasture, it's going to have stuff stuck in its fur. We have a picture here. Like, they're goofy-looking creatures, right? I mean, look at those ears, okay? They're not intelligent either, right? I mean, bah, right? That's the noise that they make. They're not intelligent creatures, and they would have been prone to vulnerability. If you look at even just the way that their bodies are formed, they have these big fluffy bodies and these tiny little skinny legs. They are not going to outrun anything, okay? Sheep are vulnerable in nature, and they have no way of defending themselves, Now, the people of the first century would have understood this idea of vulnerability well. They were dependent on weather and land for food. If there was a drought, where do they go to get food or water? There were nations at war constantly with each other. If disease came in, it could wipe out whole people groups. They were very, very vulnerable just by nature of the time that they lived in. And they would have welcomed this idea of a protector. But these things don't affect us the same way in our culture and context today, right? Some places in the world, this still would affect us, and people are more vulnerable. But in our context, we are not as vulnerable. We have modern medicine. We have technology. We have organized sociological systems. And so we're just not prone to being affected by these things in the same way. And I would go so far as to say that our culture here in the US even tells us that it is a bad thing to be vulnerable, that we should not be vulnerable.
0: Right. And I think that the the byproduct of that, and I think that if we were all to kind of contemplate that reality, the more you think about it, the more true it really is. The culture says, our American culture says, don't be vulnerable. In fact, we fight against that. They're like, be vulnerable. No, I can't. No, that sounds bad. I don't want to be vulnerable. I can protect myself. Right, and, and so I think that the byproduct is if culture is so heavily influenced that way, then for us as individuals, what do we do? We think that we shouldn't be vulnerable. And so the idea of authenticity, like we, we hide and we protect all of the stuff that is deep down and we shove it down there because we don't want anybody to see just how messed up we actually are. Are, and there's no need to be vulnerable, and that's not true. We know that sheep, and very, in fact, sheep are incredibly vulnerable, and yet that's who we are. We're very, very vulnerable. Um, and you probably can tell because I'm like, like loaded up on ibuprofen. But three days ago, I woke up, and all of a sudden, I got out of bed, and I went like, "Oh no!" And like, I couldn't like, my back was like. Like just super painful. So like physiologically, we're vulnerable, emotionally, spiritually. We have all of these vulnerabilities, and that's that's a reality of the world that we live in. And so we need to understand our relationship. If I can identify and go, okay, okay I'm gonna, let's just play along for a second. I'm a vulnerable sheep. I need to understand my relationship to the shepherd. And so I love this. Check this out, what happens in verse three. There's this progression. As a shepherd would have come to his sheep, here's what he says. It says that, the sheep hear his voice. Okay? So a shepherd enters into a pen and he calls calls out. They hear his voice. He calls them by name, and then what does he do? He leads them out. Okay. So, but then what happens from there, the progression happens, right? Um, It says that he goes before them. So this is how the shepherd leads is that he actually goes in front of, and Nikki will talk about that in a second. The sheep then follow him. Why? Because they, we're back to the very beginning, because they know his voice. And at the center of this, John, in this literary context, what John, as the author, is trying to help us see and understand is at the center of this progression, the way this works, is this idea of ownership. It says that he will bring out his own. And this is so incredibly important for us as vulnerable sheep to understand who we can be, in fact, owned by.
1: When I was a kid, my family spent six months in New Zealand because my dad was on sabbatical. And if you don't know anything about New Zealand, know this. There are more sheep than people. Okay, Sheep are everywhere. And so my family, maybe this is weird, probably is. My family might be a little weird. But (laughs) we would be driving and go past pasture, see sheep kind of on the side of the road in this pasture. And my dad would pull over. We didn't do this a lot, but we did it a few times. <laughs> and we would get out. And in New Zealand, they use sheepdogs, OK? So you could get out of your car on the side of the road and start barking at the sheep. And they will actually create like they'll kind of group together and start moving as a group. We found it entertaining. So we did it a few times. But the, the point of this is that sheepdogs herd and push but a shepherd leads. A shepherd goes in front, and the sheep follow. So we have a picture here for you from, of a modern-day shepherd in Israel, and he is leading his flock. Yes, they're goats, they're not sheep. But he is leading his flock, right? So a shepherd would spend time with his flock. He would take them everywhere. And so from birth on up, they would be with the shepherd, and they would actually learn. They were trained to recognize their shepherd's voice. So if somebody else were to come to your pen or your paddock, wherever you're keeping your sheep and try to call them out, they would not follow because they wouldn't recognize their voice.
0: It's fascinating, we've never seen this in person, but it's fascinating to me that that's true as we read and did the research. We've been to Israel, but we didn't get to see this. It's fascinating to me that uh, an animal as silly and (laughs) bizarre as a sheep, as vulnerable as a sheep is, who's just not smart, would, would understand the difference between a man's voice. So even if a guy came in and said, like, I'm going to call them by name, if it wasn't the right voice, they won't follow. It's bizarre, but it's incredibly unique. And so, as, and as Nikki said, like, a shepherd would spend time with their sheep. And so somebody mentioned this to me this week, and I, it's just been ringing in my head. I love this line, and it's this. A good shepherd smells like what? Sheep. <laughs> A good shepherd smells like sheep. Let me, let me illustrate with this. How many of you guys have ever seen uh, the movie Elf or heard of the movie Elf? Awesome. I get it. Okay, that's a good participation, the number of you. Um, I get it. Elf is a Christmas movie, but, you know, they're, they're linked to Jesus' birth, Jesus' death, resurrection. So um, if you don't know, Elf is a, is a totally fictional uh, movie, so don't think that there's any, anything in this. Um, but, but Buddy is raised, like, in the North Pole. And and he lives with Santa, and so uh, Buddy the Elf, right? He eventually embarks on his own, and he ends up in New York, uh, and he begins to pursue life and, and do all this, and he ends up working at Macy's, and they're getting ready and prepared for Christmas, and so then they, what do they do? They say great great news, Santa is coming, and everybody knows that it's it's not the real Santa, and so he's like, wow, Santa, I know him, I know him, I'm so excited, but then enter Santa onto the scene. And it doesn't look like the santa that he knows and so here's what he does i think this is crazy i'm nicky i'm gonna just get in your space he gets he buddy the elf gets in santa's face and he goes and he s- sniffs his beard and he and he goes you don't smell like santa you smell like beef and cheese <laughs> I love that, right? You smell like beef and cheese. So his whole thing is like the deduction here is that you don't smell like Santa. Santa should smell like Christmas, like candy canes. And because this man didn't smell like Christmas, therefore he wasn't what? He wasn't Santa, which is funny. And so a good shepherd, you know that he's a good shepherd when they smell like sheep because they're spending time with them. That's the real deal. And it's almost as if Jesus—and this is, again, this is, this is not in Scripture, but I just have this image in my mind of Jesus, like, leaning forward and sniffing, sniffing the Pharisees. This is super weird, okay? Um, like, he sniffs the Pharisees, and he's like, guess what? You don't smell like sheep, which means that you're not a good shepherd, There's something wrong in this story if the shepherds of the people don't actually smell like sheep. And so really, it makes makes perfect sense that as Jesus is, is unpacking this parable, and he's talking about sheep and a shepherd, and the sheep are supposed to know his voice, and guess what? These Pharisees have no clue what he's talking about. They don't understand because they don't know his voice, because they're not his sheep. And that's the way it is.
1: So Jesus has to go on to explain to the Pharisees. He says again to them, truly truly again that double emphasis, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he and will go in and out and find pasture. So, just to kind of give some context, we're going to throw up a picture here of just kind of the terrain of Modern day Israel. Now it would have been similar to this, however, in the first century as well, but it's very arid. There's not much there, right? And so, in order to protect the sheep at night, they would have had to build these paddocks or pens. And it's likely that they probably had some that were established that they would kind of travel to and about. But in order to build them, they would have had to collect stones and create these stone walled enclosures. And they would have had one door, one way in and out with a gate. And oftentimes the shepherd would have even slept in that gate to further protect his flock.
0: And it baffles me every time I look at this, because I know that there's probably different pens that would have existed for them to go to. And yet, if, it's, if you see darkness or like coming, and if you're a shepherd, and you know all of the dangers of the night and everything that's there, you go, I need to protect my sheep. And so think about, like, you look at all those rocks, and you go, think about how many rocks that you would have to collect to build a wall thick enough and high enough to keep all of the bad things out. That's a ton of work. So much effort that that, that this shepherd would go to to keep his flock safe. Now, now here's the deal. Let's just imagine that we are the sheep because if you haven't picked this up, we are the sheep in the story, okay? We are the vulnerable, silly, weird, goofy creatures who are just a mess. And so if we are the, the sheep inside of the pen, what happens when we are in a pen? Our human nature says, let me be free. Like, we want to run. Like, we just want to be out. Like, we don't, we don't know what's outside of the walls, and yet we want to run wild. We want the, the freedom to be the absence of all law and to be the absence of all boundaries. Like, we just want to go and go and go. And so uh, we look at, like, Jesus or this shepherd maybe laying across the doorway who's offering protection, this final layer of protection, and we look at them almost as this this overprotective parent, like, stop sleeping in my doorway. That's weird. Like, don't do that. And yet, Jesus is like, gosh, I know what's safe for my people. So let's just imagine for a second, the 11 or a 12-year-old came to you and said, I think that I should be able to drive right now whenever I want, wherever I want. Okay, cool. So let's unpack this for a second. Let's just, let's just think. What if, what if everybody in the United States was given a brand new Lamborghini? And, and you have the right to drive it, whatever your age. No matter what age you are, you can drive it. Oh, also, guess what? There's no speed limit. And there are no stop signs. Do you think that this is going to go well? No, right? Like it's not, because we know that there are certain boundaries that need to exist for the safety of people. And so it's very important for us to understand as humans, because we long for freedom, and, and the most easily the way that we interpret that is that, that freedom is actually the absence of law, that if I can just go do, I'm free to do whatever I want. And, and the reality is, is that true freedom is not the absence of law or boundaries, it's the presence of the right boundaries. And that's so fundamentally important to who we are as vulnerable, messy, chaotic, silly sheep, right, who could just get tipped over really with a finger, right? This is who we are. And so the shepherd is the one who knows what boundaries are safe, and he is the one who sets those boundaries. And so ultimately, though, when we think about this pen, that this stone wall that has been created, the ultimate form of safety is what? And Jesus, and this is the way that the story is going, because Jesus in the text says those who enter in through this door are what? They are saved. So what's he talking about? He's talking about salvation, the state of being saved, those who are forgiven of sins and therefore have eternal life. That's what he's talking about. He says those who enter through this door. And so when he says, talking about the door, it's really akin to what he says in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And guess what? No one comes to the Father except through me, right? Just through me, there's only one door. And we live in a world, I think, that, that embraces and loves on and celebrates what we might call uh, religious pluralism, And religious pluralism is this idea that that everybody in every religion is actually talking about the same God and that every religion leads to the same place. And so the illustration that's oftentimes used is that of an elephant. And so one group is touching the leg, another group is touching the tail, another is touching the tusk, another is touching the trunk, another is touching the ear, and they're all talking about and trying to describe God. But if you were to zoom out and you see the big picture, religious pluralism says what? That they're all actually talking about the same God. They're just describing him differently. And yet Jesus says, that's not the way that it is. That's not true. I am the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, the door. So it's not like Jesus is like laying across the front of the entrance of this, of this paddock or pen. And he's like, oh, by the way, this is the, the, you, the you can only, if you, you can only enter through here, if you're a sheep, right? But by the way, if you go 10 feet to the left, you'll find another door. You can't just walk around and find multiple doors, 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 just as I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he's talking about with the door is this idea of permanent, eternal safety, the forgiveness of sins through his death and through his resurrection.
1: So he continues on and he says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So part of this abundant life is that eternal hope, right? That we have this access to be able to walk through that door into this eternal hope and eternal salvation. But I think it's more than that, right? There's there's this idea of having abundant life now, and what does that look like? And some of that sometimes might be glimpses that we get of what heaven will be like. I think a lot of us have probably experienced times where it's, it's just like, oh gosh, like, this is what heaven will be like. Uh, but it's more than that, right? So there's also you know, this idea of what does it look like in the day in and the day out to live a life of abundance? And I was reading recently in, the, in a book, and the author talks about it this way. He says that having a full life and having abundant life an abundant life has nothing to do with accumulating things or an easy, comfortable life. It's not that you have easy circumstances. It's not that things come easy to you. It's not that you have a lot of wealth or fame. But it has everything to do with our access to the King. And when, that, when our viewpoint changes on what it means to have an abundant life, that means that when we are in our deepest, darkest, darkest, hour, in the worst circumstances, whether bad test results came in, whether an adoption falls through, whether we're two months into unemployment, whatever those circumstances are, that you can still have an abundant life because of your access to the King through Jesus Christ.
0: And all those circumstances are unique to everybody's story, right? Nobody's story is the same except if it's COVID. Right? This has been a long year for all of us, and yet the promise for each of us, this, this similar peace, this promise for everyone, is that we can have life abundant right now, both eternally and right now. So that's what he's talking about when he says, I am the door. And this is a, a very bold statement for Jesus. He's really creating tons of conflict between him and the Pharisees and the people of his day, because he's, he's really saying, this is about me and what I can do for you. And so he says, I am the door. Right? And that's how we get eternal our life. That's a powerful, powerful statement. But then he goes on, and he goes on to talk about this, this shepherd piece. And so verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, I want to stop there for a second. because So Jesus sets himself um, in contrast to the Pharisees, who are thieves and robbers. Right? They are, they're thieves and robbers. But he says, I am a shepherd, which is an entirely different role than a thief or a robber. But apparently, being a shepherd is not enough, because he has to qualify himself as a good shepherd, which begs the question, why does Jesus have to qualify himself as a good shepherd? It it means that in some way, shape, or form, there must be shepherds who are what? They're bad the opposite. And so what Jesus is actually doing is super extraordinary because he's quoting uh, and referring to a prophecy in the Old Testament that is directly about this. And this is where he goes all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 34. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. I just want to read a couple of verses, these first six verses. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, and this is Ezekiel now talking. He says, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep, right? It's a great question, right? Things are not the way that they are supposed to be. Shepherds will be feeding the sheep and yet they're feeding themselves. It says, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and with harshness you have ruled them. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all of the wild beasts. And so when I think about myself, and I look at this, a pastor Uh, the title pastor really means shepherd, right? And so what if me as a pastor, as a senior pastor, only cared about myself? All of a sudden you go, gosh, there's something wrong with the system. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. There is such a thing as a bad shepherd. And that's what Jesus is referring to. He's saying, these are bad shepherds who feed themselves. And yet Jesus says, I am a good shepherd.
1: As we were wrestling through this this week, it actually reminded me of my dad when he would lend tools or camping gear, whatever it is, to somebody. And maybe some of you can relate to this. He would give it to them, and inevitably that person would be like, great, thank you so much. I'll take care of it as if it were my own. And he would he'd be like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, you will take care of it as if it were my own. Because he knew that his standard of how to care for things is probably higher than other people's.
0: I can attest to that. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And I could totally see him saying that to me, even though he has no, no reason or right to, you know, just because I, I, I would treat it like his, no, how he, who, he should say it to me. Um, but that's the reality. I think that's what's happening in this text, right? It's almost as if God, Yahweh, is loaning out his sheep to people, and he's like, I want you to take care of these sheep. And you can almost see the shepherds saying, what? Like, I will, I will treat them as my own. And God's like, no, that's not the way it needs to be. You need to treat them as if they were my own. And that's exactly the failure here, because they, they don't treat the sheep as if they were Yahweh's own. And so look at what happens in verse 10. Like God says, he says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and i will require my sheep at their hand to put a stop to their feeding of the sheep no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves i will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them
1: and then down in first in verse 15 he says i myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and i myself will make them lie down declares the lord so he's saying you all are not doing a good job of caring for my sheep and my people So I am going to come myself and rescue them and care for them. And then down in verse 23, he says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, this is a little bit confusing because here he first says that he, the Lord himself, is going to be the shepherd. And then just a few verses later, he says that, no, there's going to be some human rescuer that he's going to send. Uh, to, to be the shepherd, right? Now, keep in mind, this would have been written 500 years or so after King David had died. So when it says his servant David here, he's not referring to King David himself. He's actually just referring to the lineage of King David. Now, the Jewish concept of Messiah was not like we have today. They would not have known or anticipated that their Messiah would have been divine or God himself. They would have anticipated just a human rescuer that had been ordained by God to come and rescue his people. So then when we turn to John 10 and we hear Jesus saying in John 10 that I am the good shepherd, it gives us a little bit new light to this, right? Because Jesus is from the line of David. And so he is this human rescuer. But when he says that I am, it's not just like we would say in casual conversation, I am such and such. He's saying I am. It's this idea of Yahweh. He's linking himself to Yahweh, the Lord of the Israelite people. And so in doing so, he is fulfilling both of these prophecies. That he, God himself, is rescuing his people. But also as a human, he is the rescuer.
0: Right, really, he is this perfect substitute because he's fully divine and he's fully man. And then it begs, though, this question, though, like, so we go, because we go back to John 10, right, he says, I am the the good shepherd. Um, What is the first thing that verse 11 says about how to qualify good? So if he says, I'm a good shepherd, I'm not a bad shepherd, but here's what a good shepherd is or what a good shepherd does. It says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what qualifies good.
1: And the people that he's talking to, again, remember, they don't know what's coming next. We know the end of the story. They didn't. So when he says that he says that he's going to lay down his life, they didn't know that that meant that he was actually going to die. And so he's here he's giving them this glimpse. He's kind of foretelling what is going to happen to him, that he is going to die for them. We're going to put up a picture of one of two... Per- kind of proposed sites. If you were to go to Jerusalem, these, this is one of two proposed sites for Jesus's tomb. And this is the inside of the tomb. So this is where Jesus was saying he was going to go or something similar to this. He is exchanging his own fate with the fate of his followers. That if you place your faith in him, he will take that upon himself and die for you in your place.
0: And I remember when we went to Israel and we first stepped inside of this tomb and I just began to think and what would it have been like to be Jesus to know that this is where he was going that he was entering into to death which for us apart from Jesus is permanent and so he looks at this and he goes, gosh, like, this, is, this is the fate that I'm going to take for the sake of the sheep. But it begs this question. And so if I think about the shepherd, if you go back to the pen for a second, because if Jesus is the shepherd, the good shepherd, and if he's laying across the front and he's making sure that no wolves or anybody comes in, what happens if the wolf comes and he protects the sheep, but he dies in the process? Because there's the question, what good is a dead sheep or a dead shepherd If the wolf comes back a second time, there's, there is no good. And so this is a very temporary thing. so you begin to go, gosh, like this isn't the way that it needs to be. Like this isn't a permanent fix. And so this is where the resurrection really enters in. In verse 17, he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life, but it doesn't end there. He doesn't stop there. It gives this purpose clause, the, that, or the, so that what, this is the key that I may take it up again. So not only that I would die for the, for the forgiveness of sins, but that it's in the resurrection that I actually offer hope to people. And if you remember Paul, when he says if the resurrection isn't real, guess what? We above all people are most to be pitied because the death wouldn't really matter for us. The forgiveness of sins doesn't matter unless there's hope of eternal life afterwards. And so it's something that we, we, we miss and we look over a lot. And so here's a picture of that same tomb, uh, except from the outside. And, and this is, I think it's just helpful because sometimes when I think about a tomb, when I was little, I used to think of just kind of this weird random cave and a bunch of guys just pushing a big giant stone or rock in front of the door. And yet yeah, here's what it would have looked like. They would have shaved, kind of shaved down the front of this, of this rock. And they would have carved uh, this little kind of trough right below the bottom. And that's not for water. That's actually to hold a stone in place. And so they would have carved out a large, circular, flat piece of rock or stone that would have started on the left. And then it's a little bit just slightly downhill. And so what they would do is they'd have a block in there, and as soon as the person was buried, they would remove the block, and the, and the stone would just roll, follow gravity, and it would tuck up against the side, and then there's no moving it, and it's done, it's, it's closed, it's permanent. And this is where Jesus, the miraculous story of Jesus, because if you remember, you go back to the crucifixion, is that Jesus actually, even on Palm Sunday, would have entered in and had all these expectations, all of the hopes of the people resting on this, this Messiah figure, but only five days later on the cross, To have all of those hopes and expectations hanging with him on the cross. And so he'd have been put in this tomb, right? In three days, people would have been grieving and mourning and thinking that this is the loss of everything. We have no hope, total despair. And yet, what Jesus then does radically transforms the permanence of reality forever. Because in this tomb, life enters back in to him. And I know that we know this conceptually. Jesus came back to life. But can you imagine? What if we had a GoPro like, in that space? Like, we could watch this happening. What would it have been like? I mean, this is, this is absolutely incredible. This is like John 9. This is amazing stuff. Incredible. Never has this ever happened before. This is the way the story goes. And Jesus would have like, started breathing, and he would have unwrapped himself. He would have sat up, and he would have come out. And then the, this, this large tomb door that is by gravity stuck into the wall is somehow removed and out walks Jesus, forever changing the reality for our hope. Because here's the deal. Once Jesus is out, once that stone is rolled away, guess what? You can't undo that. It's not like Jesus came out and smelled the air and was like, yeah, you know what, I'm gonna go back in. And he goes back in and dies and rolls the tomb and then we're like, we're back where we started. That's not the way it is. As soon as that tomb door was rolled away, this became a permanent fixture for people. And this is the door for people to enter in for life, for eternal life, by, the, by grace through faith, the forgiveness of sins, which is this absolutely incredible, momentous story. And Jesus then says in this, is he's, again, foreshadowing, he said, gosh, I want this to grow. So verse, uh, verse 16, we go backwards a verse, he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And they, guess what? Even these other sheep, they will listen to my voice also. So there would be one flock and one shepherd. So there's this invitation to anybody, anybody who would want eternal life, the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith. Anybody who would want that can have that because of his death and his resurrection, which is just absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, and when we choose to walk through that door... We're given that salvation. And we get a glimpse of this in First Peter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So this inheritance, what's waiting for us through that door is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which means that it is death-proof, it's sin-proof, and it's time-proof. And not only that, but that it is guarded and kept for you in heaven.
0: Which brings us back to the gift at the very beginning. And we remember this question, is there anybody of us who would be uh, in danger of either falling asleep or tuning out when somebody gives us a gift. We say, no, no way. Because when somebody gives me a gift, this will benefit me in, in ways that I have yet to understand. And so when I think about that, the nature of any normal gift, whether it's even just like uh, like a Starbucks gift card or something, that we go, gosh, like this is great. And yet, when I compare any other gift to what was just read, the hope, through the resurrection hope, something that is sin-proof, something that is death-proof, and something that is time-proof. We look at this and we go, could any gift be any better than that? There is no gift that's better than that. I mean, that's how good this gift is. In fact, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the word good in Greek can be translated good, but it's not the normal word for good. It can also be translated beautiful. And so when Jesus offers this gift, he's saying, not only am I good, But look at the beauty of the gift that I have to offer. And so we look at Jesus as the door and Jesus as the good shepherd, both of which are powerful statements. Uh, The door, freedom is not the absence of boundaries, it's the presence of the right boundaries, right? And anybody who enters through that door can have eternal life. For anybody that would choose that. But he's also the good shepherd, right? Um, he's not a thief. He's not a robber. And he's not the hired hand, which we didn't read. But he doesn't run away from problems. He doesn't run away like the hired hand. He actually runs to problems. And the way that he runs to this problem is what? By laying down his life and picking it back up again. Jesus as the good shepherd is someone who seeks out and protects over and over and over. And so these are very powerful statements, both of which offer tons of life and tons of hope. But the reality is that these are not, just, it's not just information. These are transformational things, so transformational and so important. And so here, I just want to end with these two questions. One, maybe you've never actually walked through the door. Maybe you've never walked through it. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time, maybe you've heard it a hundred times, but you've never done it. Maybe you've grown up in the church and you think, man, like I, like I thought I was, I was in the pen, but I just, I'm not sure that I am. I encourage you to wrestle through that and find someone, pray through it, talk through it. And the second is this, is that maybe we need to remember that Jesus doesn't run from our problems. He doesn't abandon us to our problems. He is a good shepherd. Maybe we've been following bad shepherds. We need the good shepherd who over and over, in both of these scenarios, Jesus says, and this is kind of the tie, you can have abundant life in me. If you, even though you're vulnerable, you can be owned by the good shepherd and you can have life abundant, which is eternal and present. And so wherever you're at this morning, whatever is going on in your life, can you, remember, can you remember this, is that there is life abundance, there is that promise. And remember that a good shepherd smells like his sheep. And there is no shepherd in all of history, nor present, nor past, nor to come, other than Jesus, who offers you the ability for him to lay down his life and to pick it up for you. There's one door and may he be your king. So let's pray this morning. Father, Lord, as we wrap up our time this morning, as we wrap up Easter, uh, this, this celebration, again, we started with this idea of knowing that the Passover, what had been celebrated then, was this, uh, this transition into new life. And so for us as, as people in modern day, Lord, we know that there is new life accessible to us. We have access to the King, this, this life abundantly, both eternally and present. We have that access. But, Lord, wherever we're at this morning, if we've never, ever walked through that door, um, or uh, if there's just things in our lives that we go, gosh, I'm just, I'm just messy, I'm a vulnerable sheep right now, would we run to the good shepherd, whoever we are, uh, and just remember that you are so much better than we could ever, ever imagine. Lord, we love you, and we celebrate this on a daily basis, the new life that's available in you. In your name we pray. Amen.